0: cool. We got in the back, just to bring everybody's attention to them, uh, right back here in the green shirt, this is Lucas, and that's Christy, his lovely wife. Lucas doesn't mind the attention. Christy probably hates that I'm doing this. Um, I, I point them out, though, as, a, as an object lesson. When we talk about uh, that we want to be a community that lives on mission, Meg and I were a part of a small group. When did you guys leave? About five and a half, six, six years ago, somewhere around there. We were, we're a part of a small group. About six, seven years ago uh, of a group of people who actually from, in this case, were from a lot of different churches. But we said, hey, we want to really live life together with each other centered around the scripture. And so we started hanging out with each other and we would have meals together and we would study the scriptures together. And uh, through that time, we really bonded together in in a re- really deep way. And today, even though uh, all, every other couple that was a part of the, uh, the community group, there were four or five couples. All of them live uh, elsewhere, Greenville, Columbia, Charleston, for some reason, southern Alabama. We're not sure why, how that happened, what was going on with that. Um, but Greenville's bad enough, but there, southern Alabama, I, I don't know, that's, you know, whatever, to each his own. But we are scattered around the southeast, but still to this day, Them having moved away five and a half, six years ago, other people scattered, Alabama, South Carolina, still to this day, if I got a call from one of those people, even South Alabama, and they said, this is going on, this is a tough time, I would be in the car, in a plane to them right now, and I know that it would be the same for, for me. It's five years, six years removed from being around each other on a daily basis, even a weekly, monthly seasonally basis, still to this day, there's a bond that is very, very deep. And the reason I bring that up is because that's what we're looking for as we're planning this church. I mentioned last week, we're not, we're not looking to gather a crowd. We're looking to build a culture. We're looking to build a group of people who deeply share life together around the gospel and are living it on mission. Living life on mission together in deep, meaningful community. That is what you and I are called to be a part of as believers. And that's our picture. Nothing less than that is what we're going for. If we, next week, if we had 500 people show up in this place and we couldn't fit everybody in here, we would not consider that a success if we aren't building a deep community with each other, centered around the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, living life on mission, that's success for us. That's success. And so, I just want to throw that—that—that's a picture. As you can see, those two awesome-looking people back in the back row. Six, five and a half years later, they live in Greenville. They came in here. They surprised us. Came in here this morning just because they wanted to. I don't know. had no reason. Love us. Support us. And uh, that was really cool. They didn't come here just for that they had other reasons to be here i'm not going not to pretend with you if you have your Bible you can turn to Ephesians chapter two we've been uh, we've been working through the book of ephesians that's kind of the way we do it here uh, I say that's the way we do it I mean we're brand new so I mean I guess I don't know really what that means but that is the way that we do it. Our philosophy is we're going to work verse by verse through the different books of the Bible because really what I have to say or what Dale has to say is not what's important. We're not gathering here because we have an awesome band or because we have an awesome speaker. We're gathering here around the word of God to hear God speak to us. And so we feel that's the best way to do that is actually open his word and look at that. Last week we were in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. And Paul's writing this letter to this church, as Dale mentioned, that he planted in the city of Ephesus. And it's a really a, a, it's a really a letter to a church plant success story. Some years later, Paul had spent two or more years with them teaching the gospel, planting this church, getting established. He talks about how he had shed tears with them, how it was a labor of love when he was among them, and now he's writing back to them this church that he loves, this plant church plant that he was a part of, and it's a successful church plant. We know that because earlier he said that he gave thanks for them, and that he said that they had faith and love that was evident among each other. So he was giving thanks for them, and now he's just like reminding them of the gospel, reminding them of what G- what he had taught them whenever he was with them, reminding them about the truth. And he, in the end of chapter one, he was praying for them. He had a prayer for the Ephesians. And then in verse one of chapter two, he, he, uh, he starts talking about uh, what our state was before we were born again. And if if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's the state that you're in now. If today that you are, if you're here, you are a Christian, it's the state that you were in. Let's start in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Remember, I talked about some of us have heard the illustration that uh, whenever you were, you know, whenever you came to Jesus, it was like you were out in the middle of the ocean and you were kind of treading water and you were going down, you were bobbing up and down, you were about to go down and then Jesus showed up in some lifeboat and he threw you one of those lifesaver ringies and you grabbed hold of it and he, you were saved. And we said that's really not the picture of what Paul is painting here. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He just doesn't say you were drowning or you were on your way down. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so if we're to picture what a, a biblical picture of that scenario of you in the ocean or you in the lake, uh, if you're in the Waccamaw River, going on here is, is that you're not bobbing up and down, about to go under, you've gone under. You're dead, you're at the bottom of the ocean, you are lifeless, there is no breath left in you, your body is decaying. And Jesus comes, dives into the water, pulls you off the bottom of the of the ocean, pulls you off the bottom of the lake, off the bottom of the river. He pulls you up, he gives you new flesh, he breathes life into you, and suddenly you are alive. It's an amazing thing that happened. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the Prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So he's saying, not only were we dead, not only were we blind and lifeless, but we, because we were blind and dead, we were like the walking dead. We talk about how everybody's fascinated with zombies these days, it's, you know, Every other series on TV, on HBO, movies coming out, books. We're fascinated with zombies. It's the uh, there's a whole like kind of a following on the internet of people that are waiting for the zombie apocalypse to actually happen and to occur. There's video games. Like we're fascinated with zombies right now, and we said that that's exactly what he's describing. That we were not only were we dead, but we were the Walking Dead. We were being uh, pushed along with the course of this world because when you're dead. What? What? You're not swimming upstream, are you? You're just flowing with whatever current you happen to be in. And we talked about how people don't grow up. They don't say, whenever a kid, I grow up, I want to get married. I want to cheat on my wife, and I want to destroy our family, and I want to make my kids hate me. Or I want to. I want to get this really cool job, and I'm going to find myself in a tough financial circumstance. and I'm going to start stealing from the company, and one day I'm going to. About three years later, I'm going to have good intentions to pay it all back, but I finding myself in a situation I can't pay it back, and I'm getting all caught up, and then I, I get arrested and put in jail for 20 years. We don't grow up saying, hey, this is the course I want to follow, but we just find ourselves caught in the course of this world, just like a lifeless, the walking dead body just with the course of the world. Then with the next part, it says the, the prince of the power of the air, that we were, um, following the prince of the power of the air. So we said, not only the walking dead, they're just following the course of this world, but the picture of like a marionette master who has strings on us, and he's just, he's just making us go in whatever direction he wants to go, do whatever he wants to do, because we're following, you are worshiping somebody, you are following somebody. Your are somebody or something is your Lord at any given time, and if it's not Jesus Christ, then it's the other prince, the prince of the power of the air, how we have an enemy who's just, Controlling us apart from Christ, like we're marionettes on a string. And then it said that um, this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Uh, Dale and uh, I'm not sure if it was a rebuke, but Dale and Justin brought up at breakfast on Friday. They said, oh, What was up with you talking about? Have you ever thought about with your other head? Uh, if you were here last week, there's like six of us here, so maybe you weren't, you don't remember, but I talked about how when it talks about we, did, we were fulfilling the desires of the flesh, the desires of our mind. Have you ever heard somebody use the phrase, He wasn't thinking with his head, He was thinking with his his other head. You know what I'm talking about? He, You guys tracking with me? That's what's going on. You know, we we're following the, the course of our, the, not only the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, but there's just certain desires of our flesh that are pushing us and propelling us in certain directions. Again, you don't wake up in the morning saying, you know, I hope i Go do all this stuff. There's just something some people you feel compelled to do that, whether it's other people or women or men or drink or whatever the case may be, it's just desires of the flesh that control us and propel us in whatever direction. So we were dead, we were lifeless, we were blind, we were under the control of the course of this world, we were in control of the marionette master who's in control of all of mankind apart from Christ, and we were just slaves to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We talked about how by nature we were children of wrath. And not only were we dead, and so we, act, we, were, we acted like dead people, but we, we were all dead. Every person, nobody escapes it. Nobody is born a good person and is going to skip out on this. Every single person from birth, by nature, are children of wrath. You are born dead. You are born the walking dead. That is the situation you and I and all of us are in or have been in. That's just the truth that is by nature the way that we are made. By by our father, our father's 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 father, father Adam. And by nature, children of wrath. We talked about how what you and I needed deliverance from wasn't just from sins that we've committed or our propensity to do sins, that what you and I needed to be forgiven of, acquitted of, saved from was the wrath of God. And how that, even when I say that to a group of people, it kind of catches in my throat before I even say it. We don't, something we don't like to talk about very often, the wrath of God. But we were by nature children of wrath. We talked about how that's that's the only thing that can be just. Because if if you get pulled by a highway patrolman and you're going seven miles over the speed limit, and you beg him for mercy, that feels, you feel really excited and grateful. But if somebody was driving drunk and they ran a red light, they ran into another car and killed the passengers in the car, a four-year-old girl dies in the crash, and that man stands before a judge, we don't want the judge to say, that's okay, I'll let you go. We know that there has to be a sense of justice. That when great Horrible things are done wrong. We feel that there's a sense that justice has to be served. And that is all of our situation before God, apart from Christ. We are under the wrath of God. That is what we needed saving from. If you leave it there, it's not awesome news, is it? But we talked about how if you don't feel and recognize the truth that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins that we were following another prince other than Jesus Christ, that we were under somebody else's control, that we were traitors against the throne and we don't feel the weight of what that means to God, then you can't appreciate the next word that comes in verse four, which may be the best word in the entire Bible. But until we get there, you won't feel an appreciation for how great the news is until you know how bad the news was before it. Uh, if you guys may have heard me mention it before, about a year and a half ago, um, I'm 35 years old, a year and a half ago, so I was 34. You know, reasonably healthy condition, never had any big deal going on. One, uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving, I got a nosebleed. I'm a grown man, gets a nosebleed that's not usual. And it like, and then I, I didn't tell Megan, I would keep like hiding it because it was like a real nosebleed, like it it was like coming profusely. And so I try to, I was finding ways to get it stopped and I hadn't told Megan. But then Monday I went into work and my nose started bleeding and it would not stop. It was like a faucet. It was pouring. And I happened to that day to be in the office alone, which I was grateful for. At one point I had uh, paper towels, uh, Kind of rolled up and stuck up both sides of my nostril and it was like it was red all the way down and at some point during the day I thought you know this, this isn't supposed to happen uh, I probably should get this taken care of and so I, I talked to Megan on the phone and I said I think I probably need to go to the hospital after work <laughs> I'm going to finish this up and then I'm going to go to the hospital I, I seem to be okay I, I got these paper towels stuck up my nose you see and nobody's in the office right now so I'm, I'm okay And so I went to the hospital and they told me that my blood pressure was so high that it was about to burst my brain. And that my nose was bleeding as a release valve to keep it from going to my brain. And uh, so they had me change my diet a little bit, had me put on some medicine and things are great. But here's the deal, if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I want you to go lower sodium in your diet, and because it's good for you, I want you to take this pill. You're like, no way am I going to do that. These fries are way too good, and I'm not going to take this pill. What? That's stupid. But if you know that if you don't do those things, that your brain will explode it gets you like you're grateful for the attention. I don't like doctors. I hate hospitals. I, I tend to get kind of faint in hospitals. Like the blood starts rushing to my head, no pun intended, and I'm just kind of standing there, and like things start to kind of ed, like black out on the edges. I get very uncomfortable in the hospitals, but I was appreciative to be in the hospital that evening when I found out that if I had not come in, my brain might have exploded. You don't look forward to seeing the doctor. You don't care about seeing the doctor. It doesn't mean anything to you unless he's like a close personal friend of yours. Like, you're like, hey, man, good to see you. Unless you know that if he doesn't show up and help you out, you're going to die. And that's the point of verses one through three of chapter two, is to let you know here is the really Bad news, not because I want to be a bummer, not because I want to be the downer, not because I want to come in here and depress you today, or last week when you left, like, oh man, that's great, we're dead, and we're, you know, by nature, we're following the course of this world, and we're like puppets on a string, but because you can't appreciate the good news till you hear the, till you hear the bad news. If the smoke alarm in your house goes off in the middle of the night and it's just because the battery's dying, you're irritated. But if the smoke alarm goes off in the middle of the night while you're sleeping and wakes you up because your house is on fire and you're able to get yourself and anybody else that means something to you out of the house, then that is a really good news, even though it's annoying and chirping. And that's what verses one through three is. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then, like I said, not only the best word, maybe the best two words in the entire Bible. Among whom, while we'll starting verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let that sit on you. Verse four, but God. It's the best two words in the entire book. But God. You were by nature children of wrath. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were helpless, hopeless, lifeless at the bottom of the sea. Your flesh was being gnawed off by little animals coming down there. You were out of it. But but God. But God. We all love a hero story, don't we? I mean, how many Superman movies have they made now? Like, they finished, like, the like, all right, we're going to start over, and this is the beginning of Superman. Same thing with Batman. They made the Batman movies. They said, we're going to start over. We're going to go with the beginning of Batman. They like, can't sell enough of them. The Avengers, uh, we like to watch Tr- Jack Bowers coming back on 24 on, on Fox or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. We love a hero. We've always loved a hero. Why? Why do we love a hero story? Why do we love Superman and Batman? You know what? If Superman shows up, he's just a weirdo in a cape, right? If, if he walks in here today, he's like, he's like a, a guy wearing tights and a cape. You're like, that is a weird guy. I'm going to keep my kids far away from him. If Batman shows up, he's just some guy that talks under his breath all the time, wears a cape, and seems really grumpy all the time, it has some sort of belt on, is, right? Some sort of weird car he drives. Who cares? Who cares? We love a hero because we know we have this sense as human beings that something has been lost, that this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. We know innately that we need a hero. We need somebody to come up and save the day. And so we love to watch movies and TV shows and read books and comics, but not just the superheroes, we love to anoint heroes. Everyday life heroes, politicians—the politician flavor of the day, whoever—we like to find somebody who's going to show up and save the day. We're looking for somebody because we have this sense that things are broken and we need somebody to show up. If the right person who showed up, who was just the right combination of smart and strong, but compassionate, and he was—he could—he could beat somebody up, but he could also like. He reads like Socrates, like somebody who's the the perfect balance of all these things, who could who is stronger than me but he's compassionate at the same time, if we could put all these qualities together, that would be the hero that would show up and make things right. He would make things right in America or he'd make things right in my company or or if I could just meet the right man and marry him, he would be my hero and he would save me. There's something, there's, there's longing for a hero. Why? Because we have this sense that we are lost, that we are in trouble, that we're in danger, that we need Superman, we need Batman, we need somebody to show up who has the plan and the skills and the ability to rescue us out of the darkness, to to rescue us out of the impending danger. You ever heard that, uh, you know how the music changes when the hero shows up in a movie? The the music changes. like the bad guy, he's come, and he's, he's got this plan, and he's working it, and things are really dark, and it looks like he's gonna overcome everybody, but then, but, all of a sudden you hear the music, Right? starts real low and it starts to build up. Oh, something's coming. Oh, he doesn't know it. He's... Cause don't they get like real, they get real prancy, they get real proud, the bad guy right before for some reason he does his, his soliloquy, his monologue about why he's doing what he did and how he did it and how he's going to control the whole world. He's like, you feel like he's stalling for time for the hero to even show, like why are you even do, going through this whole deal? But this music starts to curve down low, starts to build to the crescendo when all of a sudden he bursts through the window, he plows down through the wall, he shows up, the hero is here, he's been working a plan underneath, underground, nobody's seen it happen yet, he's been gathering his troops, he's been doing everything, he's been getting it all ready at just the right moment when it looks like it's really dark and the bad guy's are gonna win, he shows up on the scene to save the day. And the music builds to the crescendo. It's called a herald. It happened, it started, well, I don't know when it started, but it it was a common thing that happened in the medieval times whenever the queen or the king's favorite gladiator or uh, knight would show up to the fight. The herald would... Play the trumpet, play the horn, or whatever the beagle thing that he played, in order to let everybody know the king's favorite, the queen's favorite is here, the herald, heralding the coming of the hero. But God, that's what's happening in this text here. The music's playing, it's building to a crescendo. But God. Because you see, as we're talking about a story, we look at this book, it's one big story. It's a lot of different books, but it's one big story. And you and I are not the central characters in it. In a story, you have a protagonist, and you have an antagonist, and then you have supporting characters and all these other things that go on in the plot line. You have a protagonist and an antagonist. The protagonist is the one that the book is about, the story is about. This person. The antagonist is the bad guy. And in this great story that God has written from the very beginning, you and I aren't the protagonists. We tend to read scripture as if we're at the center, as if man is at the center, as if, as if at you and I are at the center of the story. But you and I aren't the protagonists in the story. God is. The story's about him. It's not about you and me. I was reading about the elements of story and the protagonist, the antagonist, and I read this article <clears> that's talking about the supporting characters. It was saying the supporting characters may have a, a, uh, a long backstory. They may have a long and intricate backstory, but still the story is not about them. It centers on the protagonist, so when God created the heavens and the earth, he put man in the garden the, where we fell in the very beginning with Adam and Eve is thinking it was about us. And it's not about us. We're the, you're, you and I aren't the man who shows up in the cape that saves the day. You and I are the one that's tied up and trapped. And the hero shows up and conquers the antagonist and frees us. The hero shows up on the scene, but God, but God. Think about the nature of that, how, how that happens, how that a hero shows up, it's, it's darkness, it's, it's, it's the, the, the clouds are gathering, the bad guy's about to take over, his plan is working, he's overwhelming everybody. But then all of a sudden, a ray of hope shows up. So you and I were hopeless. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We did not have any hope but God. And then it, it signifies that a, a break has happened. When the, the music starts to play, the herald starts to play, and the, the good guy, the hero, shows up on the scene. It means so there's a break. It used to be like this, but now it's like this. And it happens suddenly. Paul had experienced it. Paul thought he was a, Paul was actually a really good guy. He tells us in other places about how he kept all the law that God had given. He was a really, really good guy. He was the kind of guy you want on your side. Only problem is he got so serious about the way that he thought he was following God correctly that he started killing Christians. And one day whenever he was out on this errand, going about his way, but God happened. And light shone out of nowhere and he was knocked down on the ground. He was blinded because God showed up suddenly on the scene. But God, we were dead, it was dark, the clouds were gathering, but God suddenly showed up. Historically, he showed up at just the right time in ancient Palestine, but also just the right time in your life. He showed up, and then let's look. <clears throat> let's look at what, what this tells us about the protagonist. Let's see what this passage tells us about the main character. The story of scripture, the story of history of creation isn't about you and me, it's about God. Let's, let's see what this is telling us about the protagonist. <clears throat> but God, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. You know, um, when I... When I step out of my door in the morning, I don't check to see if there's any ants that I'm gonna to happen to step on. I don't check to make sure there's no, there's no uh, little anthill that I'm gonna crush, any beetle that I'm happening every single step that I take. Whenever I'm driving down the road, I try to avoid the animals I can, but I'm not worried, I'm not thinking, I'm gonna to try to avoid all these bugs that are gonna fly into my windshield and on my grill. But God, much more compared to God are, if a bug, what a bug is to me hitting the grill on my car are far, far, far more important than what you and I would be like to God apart from, apart from his mercy towards us. He is infinite. He is huge. He is big. We are tiny compared to him. We are infinitesimally small compared to him. And yet, but God is rich in mercy. That he looks down upon you and upon me. Who are in our lowly, sinful condition apart from him. We're not only smaller than a bug compared to you. But was a traitor, like a traitor bug to him like a mosquito, annoying him, stinging him, but God being rich in mercy. God is a God who is rich, overflowing in mercy. He, he is the Warren Buffet of mercy. It is pouring it out, it is oozing out of every part of him not because there's anything in you and I that merits that or draws that from him. You know, like babies, like we're compassionate towards babies because they're cute and little. Puppies and kittens, they evoke a certain amount of compassion towards them. But we were odious to God. There was nothing compellingly cute or endearing in you to him but he was rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Think about that. A God who is infinitely larger than you and I, when we were enemies of him, he was merciful to us. That's amazing. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. What kind of love? If you have your Bible, look at Romans chapter five. The God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians five, verse seven, saying, Almost the same thing, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, that perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're in here and you have children, I'm sure you would die for your child if it came down to it. That's great. That's laudable. That's awesome. That shows a beautiful, beautiful aspect of love. But God loved us and that while we were still sinners, while we were traitors against him, he gave his life for you. And aren't those the hero stories that we most appreciate? When Superman steps in front of a bullet, that's, that's cool, because it's really cool that the bullets just bounce off of Superman. That is really, really cool. But the heroes that we most celebrate are those that throw themselves in harm's way for those that are innocent. And they sacrifice life or limb, their body, their life, themselves, for the sake of of somebody else. And God did that for your life and for my life when it didn't count for anything. See, that's the thing. As a human to human, human life counts. But to God, when we were under his wrath and we were by nature children of wrath, odious to him, traitors to him apart from anything else, he sacrificed his life for us the just for the unjust. God is rich in mercy, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The third aspect of his character, that this, this uh, little section shows us, is made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive in that, And that illustration that we were using about somebody throwing the life vest out to you or the lifesaver, that's not the way it happened. You were down the bottom. He made you alive. You weren't in a position to beg for his mercy. You and I didn't want his mercy. We didn't want to follow him or love him but he made us alive, he breathes life into us, like somebody who chokes in a restaurant and doesn't have the, before they even, or or has a heart attack, and they don't even have a chance to ask for help, they're down and somebody shows up and breathes life into them. They do CPR, they, they, they do whatever it takes in order to resuscitate them and bring them back. You were in that position. You could not ask for help. You did not want help. You didn't, you, in fact, you would have turned him away if you were in a position to even reply to him and yet he made you alive. Not because of anything that you had to your merit. Not because you were good looking or smart or you were a good person or even you were a bad person. God did that. See, Paul was a really good person and he, say, he was saying we were all dead apart from Christ. So whether you're a quote good person or you're a quote bad person no matter what we are all in the same state and if you are alive today you're alive because God came and breathed his life into you he made you alive look at look at that phrase this is the words that he uses he didn't come and ask you hey you want you want to come with me he says that when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ he did it He didn't have to be merciful, he didn't have to be loving, he didn't have to look on you and make you alive. He did it because it pleased him. And then the last thing. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is unmerited favor. It means you didn't have anything going for you. You didn't, have any, you didn't have any marks in the pro column. You ever done that? Try to make a decision. You do the pro and con columns. You didn't have any pros. You didn't have any marks in the pro column. On the scoreboard, you were at a big fat zero. By grace, you have been saved. By grace. Look down further in Ephesians 2 we'll be covering in a few weeks, he repeats it in verse 8, for by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So what does this show us about the, the character of the protagonist, the hero of the story? The hero of the story is not you, it's God, it's not me, it's God. What does this tell us about his character? It says that he is merciful. It says that he was rich in mercy to you and I. It just that he is loving. He, he With the great love with which he loved us. What, what kind of love? A love that he self Sacrifice. He gave his life in Jesus Christ for you and I. It, what else does it show about? It? it says that he was sovereign and by his own nature chose to be merciful and loving to you and I. Not because we had anything going for us, which is the last point. It was all by grace. No merit. He is merciful, He is loving, He is all powerful, and He is gracious. This is good news. But it's not good news unless we understand what He brought us from and what He has brought us to. So if you're here today, and you have tasted of his mercy and his grace and his love and his compassion towards you, then it should, we, you and I should be astonished at that. We should, our, our jaws should be to the floor all the time because of how he has loved us and how he has shown his mercy and compassion and grace to us when we were dead in our, in our trespasses and sins apart from him. If you're here today and you have not tasted his mercy and his grace and his compassion, then you should be floored that he offers it to you when you have nothing going for yourself. And it's only by his love and his compassion that he pours out himself for you. He's the one that took the bullet for you. He's a better hero than Superman. He's a better hero than Batman. He's a better hero than Jack Bauer. He's a better hero than anybody that even we're going to celebrate tomorrow for Memorial Day. He is a greater hero than all of those combined because while we were still sinners, while we were odious and traitors against you and against him, he jumped in and he took the bullet. On the cross, he took the penalty that was due and just for you and me upon himself. So what should that mean to us? That means that we should respond in worship. We should be astonished. We should be amazed at all times. It should make us humble as people because we understand we didn't have anything going for us. So it should make us humble, but it should make us people who are always, who have a laugh and a smile, who... One time, I got bumped up to business class for a transatlantic flight when I had only paid for coach. It, was, it wasn't because I had freaking flyer miles. It was just because they had overbooked and I was late for my flight and I got put on this flight and I just happened to make it in because they had the seat. Have you guys ever sat in business class or first class? It will ruin you, especially for a long flight. It will totally, totally ruin you. You know they have leg room up there? You know the thing, you can pull the seat back, you can sleep Outstretched. They had warm nuts. They brought before we took off on the flight. They they were offering orange juice and mimosas. They brought me a menu to decide what I wanted to eat. A menu. I got to choose what I was going to eat, and it it wasn't like Stouffer's. It was like for real food that somebody had made somewhere and put in a tray. I mean, it was still airline food, but it was for real food. They had warm towels, and they were there to help you and do whatever you wanted them to do. The whole thing that this is like years ago when it wasn't common but they had we could play video games for free watch any movie we wanted to it was all it was great it was amazing we got to london I, some of my other party were out in the, in the back at like slumming it back in like coach level they, they come out they're all groggy out their hair's all crazy their breath stinking we're we're great we're like we're like this is awesome let's take on the day we got full sleep we had had warm nuts it was great it was awesome but the whole time when I first sat on the seat, I was like waiting for the stewardess to come and tell me, you don't belong in the seat. You need to go back where you belong. And it was probably, it was actually, it was after we had actually taken off. It was probably 20, 30 minutes whenever I started to kind of acclimate myself to the nice surrounding I was in. It was about 20, 30 minutes into the flight before I realized, nobody's going to come and make me go back to coach where I belong. I have been bumped up here to business class. This is awesome. I was like, we were the, the few there are a couple of, other of us that have been bumped up. We were looking, we were giddy, we were laughing, we were like, look at, it can do this, like look at these nuts, like a warm towel. This is so awesome. We were like looking at each other and giggling the whole flight because it was so awesome. We got off the flight. We we're looking at our, our compatriots that have been back in coach and they're all they're dirty and they smell and their hair is all crazy. And we're like, we're trying not to like flaunt it with them, but we're looking at each other like, it was so awesome to be in business class. Isn't that great? We should be a million, gazillion times more giddy than I was sitting in that seat because we didn't deserve it. We didn't have it coming. We were going the opposite direction, but God showed up. We should be laughing. We should be joyful. We should be looking at each other and be constantly amazed. Can you believe this? We have tasted of his mercy and his love and his graciousness and we didn't have it coming To us. That is the way we should be as believers. That's the kind of community we want to build at Doxa. We want to build a community of people who are constantly giddy and floored because we know that we have tasted of some really awesome thing that is better than anything in the world and we didn't deserve it or have it coming. It should make us humble and it should make us joyful, giddy with excitement. This doesn't mean every day I'm floating on a cloud and there are bluebirds and unicorns taking me to work, but it does mean that in the midst of even the midst of sorrow, there can be joy. Even in the midst of things not quite going my way, there can be a deep satisfaction that is, that is based upon the unmerited love and mercy and grace that God showed to me out of His own nature. It's a hero worth celebrating and it's a hero worth worshiping and it's a hero worth following into battle. Let's pray. Father, you are um, full of grace and mercy. You're full of love. And while we still sinners while we were traitors against you while we were in a a position of of being under your wrath your justful wrath towards us that you showered grace and mercy we have been bumped up undeservingly into the stream of your grace and your love and so, Father, I pray that as we sing, as we partake of communion this morning, that, that we would be reminded of where we were and where we are if we are believers here today. And if we're here today and we're, we've never tasted of your love and your mercy and your grace, I pray that, uh, that we would be um, compelled compelled to respond to your goodness and your grace towards us. You've taken the bullet. And because of that, you are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. In the name of Jesus.